Um, so we're in this place uh, where he's just recently uh, been talking to us, uh, the author of Hebrews, about uh, we had the Hall of Faith in chapter 11, and then we moved into 12, and we had this discussion about uh, those that have lived according to this faith and how they they testify to us. They, they encourage us. They speak to us. You know, the great cloud of witnesses that, that uh, give us the encouragement to uh, follow the Lord. And, you know, we went through this whole process of understanding, you know, holiness and what the Lord is calling us to. And uh, then we come uh, to verse 18 for it says, For you have not come, speaking to believers, to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire and to blackness and dark, darkness and tempest. And, and he reveals in the following verses that um, it is not that wrath-filled God. Okay, Now, I want to be clear that the wrath-filled God of the Old Testament, we often hear that, you know, the, the, the wrathful God of the Old Testament, the gracious God of the New Testament, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're, that's not the perspective of God. The, the wrath of God being spoken of here is... God is speaking his law, his perfect law, to the people, and they're in sin. They're, they're presently rebelling against God, and they're terrified with what they're hearing. They're hearing the commandments, and they are just, you know, I mean, they even go as far as making the golden calf all within that same period of time and, and committing such debauchery. Uh, while they're waiting for the law to come back down off the mountain. This is what they're engaged in, right? So their expression of fear and terror is because the pure law of God is coming to them while they simultaneously live in, in blatant rebellion to God. And I think most of us can testify uh, to what that's like. You know, we, we had a time in our lives where we were not obedient to the Lord. And our thoughts of God were this sense of terror, you know. Even if we didn't dwell on it much, you know, as our mind drifted towards a creator and, you know, judgment and accountability, oh, we wanted to run away from that as much as we could. So, you know, an example, uh, Adam and Eve fall into sin in the garden, and then we read that the Lord comes to the garden in the evening and calls to Adam and says, where are you, right? Our sinful mind interprets that as the arresting officer come and yelling, you know, where are you hiding? Where are you? You know, come out with your hands up sort of attitude. And that's not it at all. Not even remotely. Uh, what is going on is the Lord shows up in the cool of the garden every day and meets with them, and walks with them, and has fellowship with them. Like, wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing? You know what I'm saying? Like, you get out of work, you know God's waiting for you at home. You know, with full-on loving grace, no condemnation, and you just get to ask all the questions. And he's going to provide answers, like an awesome dad. He's just going to be there waiting for you. This is what they've experienced in God. Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. They've made themselves clothes, right, from fig leaves, and they've hidden themselves. This is what we do in our sin. We try to cover up our sin 
the evidence of our sin, the knowledge of our sin, and we try to hide. This, this, you know, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is not our relationship with God. God is not a terror. Grace is, is now full realized, and, and we have the full opportunity, right? Prominently writing to Hebrews, right, Jews, who have this sense of God and his, you know, ominous presence and we've got to kill these animals and perform these sacrifices lest we experience the judgment you know we've, we've got to have this animal suffer the judgment for our sin if i don't do this then it's going to fall upon me and they got that terror all the time you know it's a provision of the lord to offer them the sacrifices but he's saying and this is, is significant that you grasp this concept He's saying to these Jews who have been converted to Christianity, terror isn't part of the program anymore. You, know, you, you are under grace. You do not have to offer animals. You do not have to go through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. covers it all. You can rest in the full, assured, completed work of our Lord at the cross. And that's a huge, I mean, it's a huge struggle for the human race. Because... Our sin creates such guilt that, that there's always this sort of self-condemned punishment thing that we want to do. And, and, and the Lord's grace, it's right, not a free pass. You know, he doesn't wink and say, oh, I'll just go do whatever you want to do. Uh, but the natural occurrence is sin produces fear. And, and in this, we're resting on his grace, his sacrifice, his completed work done and especially for these Jews at this time that the, they have the temple they have the priesthood they have the sacrifices to go back to and some of them were doing that leaving Christianity and, and going back to those things and the author of Hebrews is saying you really need to prevent yourself from doing that we're, we're, we're not in that role anymore so here we're not under that you know, cloud, the, the mountain, the darkness, the tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, right? Um, throughout the scripture, you're going to notice certain instances, uh, mostly, most of the time, unbelievers hear a noise when God speaks or there's communication, and they will often say it sounded like thunder or it sounded like a trumpet blast, right? Believers hear the very words of God, right? In the same setting, Paul's conversion is one of those cases, right? In uh, Acts chapter 9, when Paul's on the road to Damascus and, and the Lord confronts him there, uh, some of those that were with him said they heard a great noise and, and that it sounded like thunder unto them. Paul heard the Lord saying, uh, Saul, Saul, you know, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know personally what I mean by that? When you come into a sermon and you hear the preacher and the guy sitting next to you is like, that was an annoying noise, you know. <laughs> and you're like, that struck me right in the heart. You know what I'm saying? I, I heard all week long I've been hearing God speak to me and I sat down and, you know, he underlined everything. <laughs> And, you know, and made it very personal for me. God, God works this way. They, they that the voice, that terror, that trumpet uh, that they heard sounding long, 
I want to give you a, a rabbit trail uh, encouragement with this. That trumpet that sounded uh, summoned all of Israel to Mount Sinai to receive the law. I submit to you that is the first trump of God. Okay? First time recorded, first time we understand it that way. Summons. What are we presently waiting for? The last trump of God, which will assemble all believers unto the Lord in his presence, unto the spiritual Mount Zion in heaven, right? You know, the, the Lord himself will descend, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, the Lord himself will descend with the voice of an archangel. You know, the, tr the last trump will sound, the, the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air. Uh, to ever be with the Lord. You go to Revelation chapter 4 and uh, you turn the page and there it says, I heard a voice speaking like a trumpet saying to me, come up here. And I was caught up into heaven. John then sees the church in heaven from that point forward. So some interesting things regarding the trump of God, gathering believers together in uh, the book of Exodus to receive the law and then gathering the church together uh, to be with the Lord uh, for eternity. Um, we're, we're waiting for the end of the church age uh, to take place, ushering in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> here they are in fear from the history of what they've heard, this voice, the words that were spoken. They heard it uh, begging that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Make it stop. You go talk to God, Moses. We'll stay here. We don't want to hear from God anymore because if he speaks to us like this, we're going to die, is, is what it's saying. You consider that they were hearing the law, okay? And the law is what? Condemning them, right? Unto death, right? If we hear this proclamation anymore, he's going to get to my sin. And then, you know what I'm saying? Just like, stop. Just write it down. We'll read it is their, their attitude, and uh, that doesn't help them. So for they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. He's actually quoting Exodus 19, uh, verses 12 and 13, what the Lord said to the nation of Israel, you know, when I've come down on the mountain and it's smoking and you're hearing my voice, if anybody comes to that mountain and touches that mountain, they're going to be executed, even if it's an animal. They're going to be shot through with an arrow and then stoned to death or, and or stoned to death. So it's, a, it's a, a public execution for approaching the presence of God in your sin. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Listen, Read Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19, and understand that Moses was not afraid for himself, so to speak. He specifically says, because of your sin, I was afraid for you. Okay, Moses is in the relationship with God, which is very reflective of the relationship that is available to us. He went into the presence of the Lord. Jesus, his death at the cross, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, giving free access into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Right? We, Hebrews tells us, have we can boldly be go, go before the throne of grace. 
now, boldly in Christ's blood. We can go there, not in arrogance, not you know unrepentant. Christ's blood uh, assures us that access. Moses is say his fear that's expressed is for the people because they're living in sin. I was afraid for you. I was terrified for you. But you have come. So not your. That's not your mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, uh, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Listen, there's a little, it's a subtle play on word descriptions. The burning, smoking, judgmental mountain uh, contains death, okay? You've come to a living mountain versus you know you didn't go to death mountain you went you've come to life mountain is sort of what he's saying you know this is you don't have to come here and envision skull and crossbones you know you come here and what spiritually is prepared for you is the glorious presence of god the warm affectionate accepting embrace is is what awaits us and an innumerable company of angels. I, I often imagine, uh, especially when reading Revelation, I know you get to chapter five and you begin to really see the throne room and what is that going to be like? I just, I think it's way worth our time to meditate on these things and think about, um, you know, I'm, forgive me in advance, please forgive me. Uh, I'm a metalhead. I like hard rock, um, Christian hard rock. And if you're saying that's not a real thing, well, we'll talk about it. But anyway, um, uh, I grew up on classic rock and uh, went to all those concerts. And as a Christian, reading about the throne room, I'm convinced that there's a satanic inspiration. And I'm not all big into the, you know, play the record backwards and, you know, any of that weirdness, okay? Um, I'm saying I think that Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible, okay? And uh, they have, we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. They have one commandment, and the commandment is, do what thou wilt, thus shall be the whole of the law. Do whatever you want. You're a Satanist, do whatever you want. It doesn't say you have to sacrifice goats in the backyard and, you know, you know, be a murderous, sick, twisted individual. Be an incredibly nice, uh, highly successful businessman. Do whatever you want. Serve yourself. No one else. Okay? Do what you want. Thus shall be the whole of the law. You look at the lifestyles of these people inside rock and roll, and I mean... Often the ones that make it to the top are the ones who started that in childhood, sitting alone with their guitar for, you know, all of high school <laughs> and becoming incredibly masterful at that. And now they've got a stage where as best they can, they present themselves as God. Smoke and lights and sound and, you know, theatrics and just me, I, all focus on what I'm doing here. Read 
right? Music and power and light show, okay? The floor is diamond glass, transparent in the entire throne room, massive music, pealing thunder, lightning, the light show, the sound show, the smoke show, in the presence of God, in joyous celebration and worship, is going to be astounding. Astounding. You know, I, I'm longing for the day where we all sing together and, and we can all actually sing. You know? Well, I mean, won't that be wonderful? <clears throat> you know, I play drums poorly. Um, and uh, when we first started having church here, um, I every four to six weeks, I would stop from the drum kit the entire worship and say, okay, guys, just follow with me. And, and I would just throw out the beat, the, the four count. One, two, why? Because some people are clapping right here while other people are out here. And, you know, it's crazy. Like, you know, it will be so wonderful when we're all in sync and we can all we all can carry a tune and we're all worshiping the right thing. You know what I'm saying? That there's no other messed up weirdness going on, just Jesus and our salvation. It's going to be a glorious, glorious celebratory thing. You know, this idea of, you know, babies on, you know, clouds with harps and how lame, uh, you know, has our enemy made heaven look. It, it is going to be rapturous to experience the presence of God and what he has in store for us. Think about, read, read, start in Revelation chapter 5, read and let your mind wander and think about the things you're seeing and the presentation that's going to be there. It's going to be astonishing. It's going to be glorious and amazing. So you've come to Mount Zion, heavy, heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all of the spirits and just men made perfect. Um, justified, right? Just men. That isn't... Um, you know, the idea of, of they, oh, they were just, oh, they were holy. It's the idea of Christ justified us. Um, that I like that description that has begun not too long ago, uh, you know, maybe a couple decades ago, where, it, you know, more commonly you hear preaching that talks about how justification, just as if I had never sinned, you know, just men and women. You know, you're never going to achieve this perfection prior to entering his presence. You know, it's it's only grace that gets you through the door. And, you know, this this whole attitude and atmosphere of holiness and worship in completion and perfection to Jesus, the mediator. Notice it says the mediator. Right. And, and we're told Paul writes and says there is one mediator between God and man, right? the man Christ Jesus, one mediator. You know, the Roman Catholic institution literally has voted on it and said Mary is a co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ. That That is, forgive me, I'm not trying to insult or offend anyone, but that's blasphemy, okay? Mary herself in the Magnificat 
when she uh, declared the glory of the Lord as she met Elizabeth, her cousin, her cousin who was going to bear John the Baptist, uh, she referred to the, the child she was carrying as her savior, right? She's in need of a savior, right? Um, you know, the, the Roman Catholic institution refers uh, to uh, the Immaculate Conception, and you, like I, might be thinking, right, Mary was not with Joseph and she got pregnant. That's not the Immaculate Conception. Okay? The Immaculate Conception, according to the Roman Catholic institution, is Mary's mother was a virgin and God caused her to be pregnant with Mary and Mary was born perfect. Well, the, the, the Protestant church doesn't use the term, have the term of the immaculate conception. We refer to the virgin birth. Okay, Immaculate conception is a term coined by the Roman Catholic institution referring, falsely referring to Mary as having been miraculously conceived and born perfect. Right? Mark chapter 3, uh, Mary and Jesus' half-brothers, because they had four sons and at least two daughters, Joseph and Mary, after Jesus was born, they get word during Jesus' ministry that he's now declaring himself the Son of God, right? We as Christians go, yeah, well, of course, right? But at that time, they weren't thinking, right? That literally means God is your physical father. They, it says in Matthew chapter 3, thinking him beside himself went to collect him. He's crazy. we got to go take him to the funny farm. They go, and you remember the occasion. The people have torn the roof apart, lowered the man down. Jesus heals him, and the crowd is so tightly pressed together that when Mary and the family arrive, they can't get in, and they say to Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? They are those here that are doing the will of my father. They were there to collect him and take him away to the insane asylum. And he verbally rejected them in that moment. One mediator. Don't let anybody dumb down Jesus Christ's position in your life and my life. Who you go to, right? Not Pastor Will. Come to me. I'll teach you how to go to Jesus. You don't need me. You need Jesus, right? I mean, if you need me to the degree that I disciple you, that's biblical. I teach you how to follow Jesus, how to become a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. I can do that in your life, and that's a biblical thing. But in the end, what I'm trying to do the whole time is take your training wheels off, where you're doing it on your own. That's got to be the whole purpose and point of the church and of church leadership. The shepherding movement of the 80s was so destructive where people were being told, you need to find yourself a shepherd within the body of Christ who will literally tell you everything you're supposed to do. No, you can't have that job. You need to quit that job and go get that job. No, you can't buy that car. I'm not exaggerating. No, you can't eat that sandwich. What? Right? No, you, you can't marry that woman. Shepherding movement was cultic. 
right? Controlling people. Whole point of what we need to do. There's one mediator. And if, if, if I get you to him and you are communicating with him and knowing God through that process, then my job is done. I, I have accomplished what I'm supposed to do in your life. Jesus, the definite article, the one singular, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better or speaks better things than that of Abel. So I want to give some, some background and some insight there. <clears throat> the new covenant is the old covenant. Okay. Abraham was met by God and God made a covenant with Abraham. Okay. Uh, New Testament students, how was Abraham saved? By faith, right? Through grace. How, how do you get saved? By faith, through grace, right? It's the same covenant. Now, there was also the Abrahamic covenant of receiving the land and, you know, the land of promise. And then you come to Moses and the giving of the law and all of these things stack, right? But salvation is the central thing, whether you're talking about Abraham and the entire Jewish, everyone that was ever saved was saved by grace, through faith, everyone. There's no other covenant. Jesus comes, and what he's doing is he's encapsulating all of that history, right? He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to complete the law. And he summarizes the law for you and I with Two very simple parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The rest of the law is encapsulated in that if you will accomplish those things with your life. And guess what? It's going to be a lifelong struggle. Right? You're forever going to be dying to yourself in order to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Even if you sort of reach some nice plateaus, right? You were a complete dirtbag that nobody wanted to hang out with. And you finally submitted to Christ and a bunch of things changed. And you, you got to that place like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm doing good. And then the Lord says, great. Now let's look at these things. And you're suddenly like, oh, wow, I did not even realize. And so you begin a whole new approach to maturity and growth. And when you've cleared those hurdles, you sort of throw your hands up like victory. And he says, good. Now let's look at these things. <laughs> Ever progressive, right? And that's good because we'd be really content living in some terrible conditions. It's good that the bar always moves, right? Because what is the standard? It's perfection, right? So there's always going to be a progressive element to our faith. So this new covenant, Jesus says there at the Last Supper, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood. And we can all go, okay, amen. You know, we've got a new covenant. But really, it's the old covenant. It's just summarized in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And loving the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. He gives us that new summation. In this, he says that it's better, all right, speaks of better things than that of Abel. 
if you're like, what, what, Abel, like, like, how, how did this come into the discussion? Well, here's a concept. Adam and Eve sinned, covered themselves with fig leaves. The God, God shows up in the cool of the garden, beckons to them. They make the confession. God slaughters animals to make them clothes. Could have been any animals. Animal skins are what they clothed in. My suspicion is it was lambs. The sacrifice throughout Jewish history is sheep, right? John the Baptist, in the fulfillment of things, says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Okay? Cain and Abel, the conflict between the two of them, Cain is bringing the fruit of his labors, the fruit of the ground. Abel is sacrificing sheep to the Lord. Now, if you've never noticed it before, they aren't eating meat yet. Why is he even raising sheep? Other than clothing, right, to cover their sin, the result of their sin, and make offering to the Lord. This animal is going to die. Because of my sin. So he is the first to demonstrate to us what later becomes the law under Moses. Right? So as far as organized religion, Abel is the origin of that. Okay? And there's an interesting invisible track that takes off, and we don't know where it goes or wanders, but it comes back together at Abraham as he's returning from war, and suddenly Melchizedek appears out of nowhere. And it says that he is a priest to the one true God. We didn't even know there was a priesthood. How did Melchizedek come on the scene, and what's he got? He's got bread and wine with him to worship and share with Abraham. This is long before Moses. Definitely, right, thousands of years before Jesus, here comes Melchizedek. And that's why here in Hebrews, the Hebrew people are told Jesus is not according to the Aaronic priesthood descended from Aaron. He is of the order of Melchizedek. No lineage, right? No family, no beginning, no end. Just in the scripture, not, not that Melchizedek necessarily doesn't. Right? He seems to be a living man. You know, but we have no record of his parents. We have no record of his death. He just pops up on the scene, and, and we're all left scratching our heads going, priesthood? <laughs> Melchizedek, we didn't even know there was organized worship. How, how is it that Melchizedek shows up here? And how is it that before the Old Testament is established under Abraham and Moses, right, that you have the elements of the New Testament in Melchizedek's hands. Really a remarkable picture of the whole thing. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, our relationship with Jesus now and our worship now is better than even Abel. <laughs> it's, it's in the purest sense of worship, right? Abel, straight, straight from Adam and Eve. Here's the, here's the first of it, right? The origin of organized worship our worship's better than that. That's a wonderful encouragement that, that we need not go back to anything. You know, it's, 
It's really unfortunate, you know, Bethel music, Bethel church there in Redding, California. If you're caught up with that, like just flush that all down the toilet. You wouldn't even believe the garbage that they teach. It's horrendous. Uh, false teacher, false prophet, claims to be an apostle, just, you know, to totally off the wall. Okay. Uh, they're part of what we would refer to as emergent or emerging church. And they're trying to take the young people of today back to elements of Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. You know, the church historically used to pray to the saints. So, uh, you know, we probably ought to pray to the saints. Yeah, let's let's get the icons and put them up in our churches and, and we'll build a prayer station and people can light candles and we'll turn all the lights down and we'll have really super moody music playing. And we'll call that worship. It's really weird stuff. Look, <clears throat> the reason the church historically prayed to the saints was because in 350 AD, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, went from killing Christians and his kingdom is dying because more people are entering Christianity than are entering his military. So he suddenly emerges and says, I had a dream and I saw the cross and I heard a voice tell me, go out and conquer in this sign. So clearly Christianity is the religion we should all be following. I've made a huge mistake. Please forgive me. From this moment forward, Roman state religion is Christianity. And he literally sends out mandate to all the pagan priests of Rome, who are leading the people in worshiping the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods, and he tells them, you're now Christian priests. Uh, by order of Constantine, Roman emperor, you are now Christian priests, and you need to convert all of your religious practices to Christian practices. So the pantheon of gods they were worshiping they told them, just convert them to Christian symbols. So, so, you know, certain gods became this saint and that saint. And, and the worship of Semiramis and her son Nimrod became the worship of Mary. No, that's not Semiramis. That's Mary. And the child she holding is not, you know, uh, uh, Nimrod. That's, that's actually Jesus. And, and now they're bowing down to idols in the church, following after pagan practices which were forbidden by the scripture you know and now the emergent church is taking our young people back to those practices there's a reason the church abandoned them okay the church came to the realization this is wrong when did they do that right during the protestant reformation when the bible was printed and they christians started reading the bible and going wait a minute our practice is sinful and wrong, and we need to abandon it. Do you understand? We're a Protestant church, right? Do you understand that the root word of that is protestant? We are protestant against the Pope. We are protestant against Catholicism. And it's important that we are. Not that we hate those people, but because that form of Christendom was incredibly corrupt. And needed to be corrected, needed to be set aright. And once it was, oh, Christianity exploded worldwide because it shook off 
all of that corruption and began to worship the Lord in a much more pure sense than it ever had. So, you know, this sense, I've listened to Bethel Music's stuff, and it is deeply moving, right, emotionally, emotionally. You read word for word what's being said in those lyrics, and their doctrine is all messed up. They're saying things that are completely false about God and creation and evolution they've mixed in and, you know, talking about how everyone's going to get saved at the end. You know, we, we go, yeah, wonderful. They mean everyone, including the likes of Lucifer. That's how messed up they are. You know, their, their pastor at Bethel says that he, he is an apostle, that he communicates directly with God, speaks with God. God hears him. He hears God. And, and that he is an ordained apostle. That that his writings, follow this, his writings are scripture also. I beg your pardon. The arrogance involved in that is, is remarkable. Remarkable. So anyway, here, what we're talking about, the New Testament believers, particularly these Jews, these Hebrews, are being told your worship of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth is superior to everything previous to you. You know, how much closer to the origin than you get, right? Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel. And here we're told hey, your, your, your worship's better than Abel's. Praise God. Praise God that we have such purity available to us. Verse 25. So that you do not refuse, uh, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him. Notice the capital H on these pronouns. Okay. This is speaking of Jesus who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, this statement that he made, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So this statement by Jesus, by the Lord, by the scripture, that he's going to shake everything one more time is the idea of I shook that mountain, I delivered my word, and the world was emotionally and spiritually shaken. By, and I'm going to shake it one more time. And and in that, um, I hope I'm not wrong. Don't Try not to take this away. This, the wrong way. I'm going to shake you one last time, is what he's saying. It's going to be so violent, a shaking, that basically only what is eternal is going to remain. I, I'm going to rattle the cages. You know, this is God telling us that we're nothing more than an etch-a-sketch. You know, I'm going to clear the table. You read Revelation. Every mountain is going to crumble. Every island is going to sink. You know, as much as we like Mount Desert Island, you know, that the scripture is literally saying, 
it will not survive. When God brings his wrath, how about this, you guys? Little tidbit. I'm not making any predictions. I don't know if this is real. Just want to put it in. I know the situation is real. I don't know how it fits in biblically. Just want you to keep this in mind. Um, the, uh, the Jesus saying in the last days, he's quoting Joel, uh, that he will pour his spirit on all, all mankind. They'll prophesy. He goes on to say, and, and the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood. Okay. And there was that thing a few years ago about the blood moons and everybody got all weird about that. Okay. Uh, that was completely wrong. Uh, how do I know? Cause the timeline that they set out has already passed and we haven't seen the things that they predicted. But Jesus said that the moon would be turned to blood red. Scientists are announcing right now that there's a phenomenon going on that um, seemingly will continue. There's no sign that's going to stop. The moon is rusting. Okay, um, They have uh, uh, telescope shots and near the, you know, we would, might refer to it as the northern pole. It's all red. And they show close-ups, right? So from a distance, we're not seeing, but close-ups show that the whole moon is rusting. Why? Why is it oxidizing? What is, is this oxidization? What is this? The moon itself is presently turning red. You know, maybe it'll stall out and that won't be what Jesus predicted. Okay, but it's enough to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Okay. The moon is right now presently turning red. It is rusting. That's remarkable. <laughs> That's remarkable. You know, there, there are things that are predicted throughout the scripture that that blow your mind. You know, stuff. You know, the scripture uh, predicted that the Nile Delta would be wiped out, and for centuries after, so it was predicted nearly a thousand years before Jesus that the Nile Delta would be wiped out. It actually describes how it's going to take place and the drying up and the snails that are going to destroy the reeds and all these very specific things. And the world mocked that, mocked that. Don't the Nile Delta is so massive and it you know, floods out every year and there's such enrichment. And why, why would the people of Egypt ever, you know, that's just dumb until 1976. And Egypt allows Russia to build the Aswan Dam. And the Aswan Dam stops the flooding of the Nile Delta. And the Delta begins to dry up. And the Delta has been destroyed because not only was the Aswan Dam destructive, it wasn't destructive enough. They built the upper Aswan <laughs> and further dried up the Delta, fulfilling the scriptures. It sat on the shelf unfulfilled for thousands of years, right? I was, I was alive in 1976. I got to experience, you know, being alive to see the fulfillment of the scripture. Right now, you know, sometimes people are unaware. There is a prediction that Damascus in Syria will be completely destroyed and uninhabitable. What's going on right now? You know, weapons of mass destruction, George W. Bush, everybody mocked. Well, there's an interesting backstory that indicates that Iran purchased all of that biological. Billions of dollars went from Iran into Iraq. That you got to understand how 
impossible that is, that Iran would ever make a purchase from Iraq. And where all of those things were stored, right, suddenly they were empty. There is good uh, evidence that it all moved to Syria. Imagine if through warfare, right, what, what have we seen Assad use? Chemical and biological warfare upon his people. Okay, What happens if there's a massive war and conflict and some accident occurs and all of that is released at once? They, they, they think that quite possibly it's actually stored in underground bunkers inside Damascus. Oldest city in the world. All of that could be speculation. But at least puts in your mind that it's not impossible. Right. You, you suddenly go, oh, wouldn't that be weird? You know, as one damn predicted and everybody's mocking. Oh, yeah, as one damn. You know, how about this? I chase rabbit trails. I'll give you one more. As one damn destruction of the Nile Delta. There was mockery of the scripture for centuries because Pilate was not referred to in any ancient texts that crucified Jesus. So they're saying, oh, that's a thing Christianity made up. Pilate never was even a real Roman leader. You know, why do we have to listen to this? Until the Aswan Dam destroys the Nile Delta, and then the prevailing winds begin to blow the dust away, and Israeli helicopter pilots are flying north of Joppa, and they see this horseshoe shape in the sands right on the coastline. And they report it. It lo clearly looks like a man-made structure. No one's ever known about it previously. They go, begin excavation, Caesarea Maritime. Okay? They unearth the whole thing. There upon the walls in the entry to the harbor port, there is an inscription that talks of Pontius Pilate and his involvement in the building and the construction of that location. God's fulfillment to destroy the delta and thereby dry up the region and the sand dunes disappear and suddenly now you can see even further history. God will not be mocked, right? He just continuously shows, nope, still in control. I'm still, my plan's still afoot. We're still working toward the finish line. That needs to be, those types of things need to be very encouraging to us Right now, when you're looking around and seeing the mayhem that's going on and you're like pulling your hair out, like how in the world could we be at this place? Because Jesus said, these are the beginnings of sorrows. This is the starting of birth pains is literally what he said, right? I'm, my eldest daughter born in 1989, we were very young and clearly not experienced with childbirth, my wife started having Braxton Hicks months before, right, the actual birth. And we panicked. Like, she's in labor and this is bad. And we're freaking out and running around with our heads cut off. And, you know, and you get to the hospital and they're like, chill out. You know, just like, you're fine. And, you know, and, you know like the third time we show up, they're like, really? You just, you know. And they tell us plainly, there will be no mistake. It will be much stronger than Jesus said. This is the beginning of birth pains when you see these things happening. 
right? Yes, they're torturous. Yes, they're uncomfortable. Yes, they're horrible. But we've got to go through them. We want what's going to be birthed out of this thing, right? We want the kingdom of heaven. We want Jesus' throne on earth. We, we want the, the culmination, the fulfillment. You know, yeah, you know, I was a spectator. My wife got to go through it, right? I was nerve-wracked. I was each time, all three of our daughters. Uh, we're all going through it. We're experiencing the pains, and they're going to get worse, right? How, how, how do birth pains develop, right? The, the, there's a big spurt, Braxton hit, long period of time. Right, days, weeks, months, another spurt. Right, they're painful. If you've not had childbirth, they're really freaking. Months, then they come. Real birth pains. Wow, very pronounced. You know, no sooner has that subsided, and oh, here's the next wave. Very pronounced, and they get more and more severe, and they get closer and closer together. You guys, we're right now in the beginning of the birth pains. And the stuff that's going on, I agree 100%. It's horrible. But we want to go through these things and get to the finish line. I'm not encouraging you uh, to make things worse. Right? We're supposed to preserve salt and light. That's our job in the world, to share the kingdom and bring people in. You know, you're, not, you're not called to make chaos in the circumstances we're, we're, we're here the messengers to provide comfort and guidance this is with the lord and not because we're super wise because we have the answers right mostly as they were sometimes in high school in the back of the book revelation tells us teaches us a lot so here as we're reading uh this whole issue of uh, what will be shaken, but you know, also heaven. The things only, not only in the earth, but also heaven. The spiritual things. And if you're thinking like the throne room, God's presence, no. No, even the principalities and the authorities of hell. Satan, his minions, those that serve the kingdom of darkness, even they will be shaken. There is judgment, right? Th think about the full-blown panic of the demons that encountered Jesus Christ. You know, they come rushing at him, and when they realize this is the Son of God, then they freak out and beg, please don't send me into the abyss. Have you come here to you know, torture us before the appointed time? Every one of them crumbles at the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. There's never any resistance. Why? Because that's their creator. And they know it. They're, they're reduced to groveling for their existence. And they will be under his power also. Now, this yet once in, indicates the removal of the things that are being shaken as of things that are made. The things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace. I mean, that's like right where you got to like clap really loud and get everybody in the class's attention because he's brought them. We're, we're, we got one chapter left. And really, 
you know, it is like farewell and greetings. This is where he brings these Jewish believers all the way through the discussion of their faith and then comes to that conclusion of, so it's bang, all by grace. Everything we're talking about for you and for I, it's important that you get down to the bottom of your soul. Let everything that can be shaken in your heart and mind be shaken by the fact that God loves you. It's his grace. It is not your religion. It's not your practice of morning devotions. Right? You know I'm not going to speak against religion or devotions or any of those things. What I'm telling you is salvation has come to you by the grace of God. That, that is the culmination of this whole message. It is not religion. I don't care. The author is saying, I don't care where you are in religion, what stage, what influence. And, you know, he's talking biblical religion. He's saying it doesn't matter how devote you are, how many practices. You know, do you go to the soup kitchen and feed the people and you get, you get all these things you do? Is any of that wrapped up in the idea that, you know, now God will accept me? That's so wrong. Just, just for the idea that God wants you to have peace. He doesn't want us trembling and fearful and anxiety ridden and always just on. We have the assurance. We have the assurance that we have salvation. Not, not the question mark. Right? We're not living our lives under, you know, saved? <laughs> you know, it's an exclamation point. Saved. That's who you are. That's how you are. Christ's work took all the obstacles out of the way. You, you are loved by him, right? I've said it in this study through Hebrews, it's, you know, it's astonishing, and we know he's the God of love, so he loves us. Yeah, we get that. He has to. It's sort of his job description. What's, what's astonishing is he likes us. He, he isn't disappointed in you. Right? Grace, again, it's not the past. Like, God loves you, so just go do whatever heinous thing you want. Just, you know, <laughs> he gave you the golden ticket. It's, it's a matter of... You don't have to live your life as a believer under a shroud, under a threat, and under a question mark. You have the assurance of salvation. I, I didn't have any big emotional experience. Well, I prayed that prayer, and I, I left feeling just like I walked in. Well, apparently that's the way God wanted you to feel. Seriously. Because salvation is not an emotion. Salvation is Jesus Christ's ability to save you. That's what it is. And he can save everyone. If you raised your hand and said, please save me, guess what? You're saved. It's as simple as that. Yeah, okay. Now, you do need to have daily devotions and grow and learn and and do things because you're saved. You do need to work at the soup kitchen or wherever the Lord leads you to. You do need to do stuff, right? Because you've been saved and now you're a child of God. 
It's responsive. It's responsive. And I think we all know that, but check your own heart, right? Idolatry is in our heart by nature, unfortunately. And and all we got to do is lose sight of Jesus and we drift. We drift into this type of behavior where now we're anxiety ridden and we're worried and we're laying our head on the pillow saying, I hope so. <laughs> and you don't have to, right? If you've been terrible and you're laying your head on the pillow, then weep. Weep for the fact that you've been terrible. Ask Christ to forgive you, but ask him as your heavenly father who has saved you. You are in his grace. You are saved. Trust him. Trust it. Amen? Amen. Well, hopefully next week we'll close it out or I'll take six more weeks and 13. We'll see. So why don't we stand and we'll pray and we'll pick up next week where we left off. Oh, I uh, I just you know want to remind you, Friday night, uh, spaghetti dinner fundraiser for the Mawini family lost their home uh, September 25th in a fire. And uh, we're going to get together and feed whoever shows up. Um, I, I brought home a, literally a whole truckload of food today, and uh, we're going to begin the preparations noon tomorrow till dinner time-ish, 4, 5 o'clock, somewhere in there. And then Friday, we'll start at noon again, and we'll go right through the dinner service starting at 5 to about 8, and then the cleanup after that. So to whatever degree you want to be involved, praying at home for what's going on here or here, neck deep in slinging spaghetti, then, uh, you know, all the opportunities that are available uh, to you. Amen? Amen. Father, uh, we pray that you would bless us, keep us, watch over us, make your face to shine upon us, Lord. Give us peace. Help us to rest in you and your completed work. Forgive us for our sin and our shortcomings. Lord, strengthen us for obedience that we would walk in fellowship with you. Show us who we can minister to, where we can speak and open our mouths and lead people into your kingdom. We want to be your emissaries, your representatives, Lord, inviting people to be part of your kingdom. Use us in the ways that you see fit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.